Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Jason Snell, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Mr. Stephen Hackett. Hello. Hello, Jason. We're back in space again. We are. Uh, we're back. It's been a fortnight. We've returned. We're on uh, on to number on to number 18. 18 fortnights later, we're still out here in space. So last episode, you, uh, in the middle of recording, yeah. uh, I mean, as people, you put out a Twitter poll uh-huh. about the NASA why not, logo. So, why not, right? While we're recording a podcast, if you heard the yeah. last episode, why not just do a poll right then and there about logos? So uh, what was the poll and how are the results stacking up? So we were talking uh, about the worm and the meatball, the two classic NASA logos. Um, and you said hashtag worm was right. And I said hashtag meatball forever. And so we put it to a test. I put up a Twitter poll. Um, a lot of people responded, which is not how you actually vote in a Twitter poll. You have to be in the Twitter client or Twitter web app and see it and then vote. And in the end, we got 61 votes. And I'm going to call it a tie because although in the end it looks like it was 30 votes for um, the worm and 31 votes for the meatball, <laughs> um and the, the, the honestly, the reason I'm going to call it a tie is that when, like, I checked it about an hour before it closed, and it was the other direction. I guess two people voted for the meatball right at the end. Um, and I thought fifty-one forty-nine. Yeah, that's basically a tie. Even though, even though I am a meatball supporter, and, and I was going to lose, I was like, yeah, we could call that a tie. And so when it, now that it's, I, I'm slightly ahead. I'm like, no. We, we got to call that a tie. So so people are, are split. And I think this is the truth about NASA's classic logos is um, they're both they're both fun and they both have their uh, support. And so you can't you know, you can't pick a winner. I think that's uh, I think it's completely fair. And I would say one vote over that number has got to be within the margin of error. Like, I don't I don't know anything about how yeah. that math works, especially but, um, since people are like replying and saying saying one or the other, which is not a vote, does not constitute right, well, a vote in a Twitter poll to just reply. If you use TweetBot, it's kind of the, your only option. Yeah, I but know. even even the replies are basically split down the middle. So yeah. I think I think this is one where we can shake hands and, and move on. Everybody loves everything is what we've learned. <laughs> there you go. Um so talking about about logos, of course, you know, NASA and other space agencies have their their big sort of branded logo, but uh one of my favorite little parts of this industry is that each individual like mission or uh, project will have its own artwork. And so you, you know, you look at all the shuttle missions, right? There's all these patches um, and that, that has continued uh, today and all the way up until today where there's a, uh, a basically a challenge going on right now. Um, someone emailed us about where you can create uh, a sample and send it in uh, for the in-space manufacturing uh, project or mission, I guess. So what ISM is doing is looking at manufacturing capabilities um, that will provide like sustainable operations during exploration missions. 3D printer in space. Yeah. Uh, and that thing needs some uh, artwork. And so there's been a call out for uh, freelancers and the public, I guess, to to create a logo and submit it. Uh, as of right now, there's no winner, but they've had like 380, 385 uh, entries, and the prize is 300 bucks. So I think it's a pretty, pretty fun way to, uh, you know, do a logo and get it sent into space would be pretty cool. Yeah, it's fun. I, I, I don't love the fact that they could have, you know, hired a uh, designer to do it, but I don't think that they're doing this to save money. I think they're doing this to do to create public engagement in the project. Yeah. So I'm a, I'm okay with it. And it is fun that they, this is one of those things that is cultural, that's kind of fascinating because there's no, there's no reason why every, everything has a patch, right? There, there's, there's no reason for that. They, like there's historical reasons, but there's no practical reason for like, well, we have to create a patch. And yet, like even those very serious, you know, uh, missile men who were the astro- original astronauts would be like, oh, I'm going to design a patch now for my uniform. Like what? It just seems so, um, so strange when you think about it that way, but it's part of the culture of it. And right down to the fact that when we, um, when we decided to do a, a logo for a, uh, this podcast because you got to have one. Um, it ended up being that Frank, our designer, uh, made it a patch, like it made sense. I don't know. Was that your idea, or did he come up with that on his own? 
Uh, it was my idea, but uh-huh. I mean, he just Solid. like knocked it knocked it out of the park. But um, it's fun. I did uh, a logo for a company here in town like 10 years ago when I was in school, and they had it basically etched into stone outside their building, like so their, uh, on their office building. Wow. And I always thought that was like like a pretty cool thing, like something I designed. It was like part of a building. But I have to say, this would be um, – I might throw my hat in the ring. I am not a NASA employee or contractor, yeah. so I am eligible. You are eligible. Because you failed the failed the astronaut test. I know. So. If I had only had a, a degree that they needed, I was in better physical shape. I could not have done this logo. I would say that trade off is fair. I mean, three hundred bucks, three hundred bucks. <laughs> um, all right. So on to some other sort of pre flight checklist stuff. Uh, we had a comment on our space shuttle episode. Did you want to uh, address this? Yeah. So we got a, a tweet from the SciJoy, which is uh, uh, not a name, but is a Twitter account, uh, saying, I think you gave the shuttles a bad rap and focus more on the bad than balancing with the good. There were lots of flaws, but there was astounding science and tech, too. As a science communicator, I just hope you'd mention those, too. And um, I, I appreciate the feedback. I mean, I feel like the space shuttle was was my you know, my spaceship in a way. I went to the last shuttle launch. It was the space shuttle. The space shuttle was what I watched when I was a kid. Um, But at the same time, it's very hard not to look at the space shuttle program and realize that it was probably a bad idea (laughs) and that it went on too long and that there were so many things wrong about it. You're right. There's a way to to view that as being sort of focusing on the negative. Um, And there was a lot, there was a lot of good in there. Uh, it's true. And yet at the same time, I do have a hard time talking about the space shuttle without acknowledging the fact that um, a lot of the things that went on were impractical and trying to make the best of what they were given, which was this impractical spacecraft with a lot of problems and doing the best about it. Sort of like when we talked about the 70s and NASA in general and Skylab in particular, there were a lot of, I think, in hindsight, bad decisions that happened post-Apollo and and the space shuttle uh you know, I, 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 I'd say I'm trying to balance my charity with my, my, my love of the space shuttle as a kid growing up with the fact that I could probably argue that the space shuttle set back U.S. spaceflight like 30 years because it was a diversion into a place it shouldn't go. So for me, I'm trying to balance those things and keep warm feelings about what actually happened and the fact that there was cool science and technology that happened on the space shuttle with the fact that from the perspective of 2016, it feels like a dead end, like a cul-de-sac uh, for uh, for space exploration. Maybe that's that's just me. I know some people don't feel that way, but that that's my feeling about it. In hindsight, is I've sort of like gone through all the stages of grief when they shut down the program and and reached the point where I had to admit to myself that I think in the end the, the space shuttle was you know was misguided. And uh, as much as I had the had made the model, had the T-shirt, went to the shuttle launch. <laughs> All of those things, and will always be my formative childhood sort of space experience. In the end, you know, I also have this thought that it was it was misguided and the wrong thing for us to do. Yeah, I, th- I think all that's uh, completely fair. You know, there are, of course, a lot of great things. I think, you know, the, <laughs> think about big projects. I mean, Hubble and the International Space Station were yeah uh, put into place on the back of the shuttle program, but. And I think we said, like, I, I mean, I consider the Hubble stuff the finest hour of the of the uh, of the space shuttle program, right? All of the the Hubble servicing missions, the fact that that so much science came out of uh, and continues to come out of Hubble that would not have happened were it not for the astronauts on the space shuttle doing all of the servicing missions they did for Hubble. And you're right, you know, building the International Space Station uh, would have been extremely difficult if the shuttle hadn't been involved. It was a key part in the in the construction of of the ISS too. So there's there's a lot of uh, great shuttle stories too. It's just you know yeah. So I, I appreciate the perspective from uh, this person on Twitter about um, not forgetting the positive things about the space shuttle, even though it's hard for me to not look back on it now and think what a missed opportunity it was. I think I think that's totally fair. So yeah. we spoke last time about space stations, and a couple people sent this in. It's a panoramic tour uh, over on the ESA site, uh, taken I believe it was taken last year. So it's you know it's pretty up to date, and you can go through here and you can uh, move around. You can basically take uh, take a tour of the space station. And something that we didn't really talk about much, but this particular website really points out. And I just watched the PBS special. Uh, about the year in space mission is that there's of course 
you know, it makes sense if you stop and think about it. There's no up or down on the space station. So every surface has laptops and modules and, you know, things on it because you can simply just turn around or flip over and have another work surface because there's no sense of, you know, up or down without, no without up and gravity. Down. Um, so if you, if you go through this, it's sort of wild to look. Like I'm in uh, the Harmony node right now just in my browser. And, like, you scroll up and there's a laptop on what appears to me to be the ceiling. But there's no sense of that, of course, when you're in microgravity. But um, I suppose so. You can't, you can't have stuff on every surface or there's nowhere to, like, push off. Right. Yeah, yeah. There's gaps and there's, um, you know, there's hand bars and feet bars everywhere, you know, but um, they definitely use all sorts of locations for stuff. So, uh, right. There's no, there's no ceiling, right? That's crazy, but that's true. There's no, there's not really a ceiling. So I'm fascinated by these, like all these panels that have uh, like, uh, it's like index cards on mm-hmm. them. <laughs> like what's in there. <laughs> okay. That's every, you're just totally surrounded by equipment. It's sort of like a uh, a floating dorm room in a way. Like there's just stuff everywhere. Um, it's it has a, a messiness to it that you might not expect if you haven't looked at photos of it before, right? It's not it's not this like sterile environment in the sense of you know pure white walls and everything stainless steel. Like it's not it's not it's not two thousand one. Exactly, it is a a a working ha- uh, living habitat. And, uh, and as such, there's stuff just everywhere. But it's a super fun tour. I played with it for uh, a good while last night in preparation of the show. <laughs> um, kind of looking around. There's a lot of ThinkPads in space. I know we don't talk about tech on the show, but a lot of ThinkPads in space. So, Yeah, I mentioned that when I went to, when I went to, uh, uh, to the NASA in uh, Ames Research Mountain View that they had, a, they had a ThinkPad that was like the NASA spec ThinkPad that was like, because they, they were doing, the, this was in the Orb Lab, the, the little uh, little orb uh space robot guys and uh one of the things they need to do is like mock up also like the interaction from the from the astronauts and so they had um a couple of laptops but one of them was labeled the space rated thinkpad it was like this model with this equipment is what is up in iss um and i told that to our friend casey list because he has a fondness for he has a family history with ibm and a fondness for the old the old thinkpad and they are everywhere which is funny because remember uh as we said last time u.s policy is that uh you can't even talk to people from the chinese space program and yet our space program is driven almost entirely by laptops made by a chinese company because <laughs> lenovo is a chinese company yeah that makes i'm in the columbus now. node right now on this tour and there's like five thinkpads just on one wall i mean it, there's everywhere but uh anyways a uh, little side trip into nerdum yeah space nerdum come on man I wonder what their backup strategies in space. Anyways, uh, so <laughs> Blue Origin, uh, Jeff Bezos' company, they have flown the uh, same New Shepard rocket for the third time. This happened just the other day. And again, you know, we, we talked about this when they did it for the second time, where this is not a an orbital flight. Like, they're basically just going up and coming back down. But uh, third time for the same rocket is, is you know, pushing that bar of reusability yep. further and further. That's pretty great. No, this is um, this is a. Uh, I love that we've got these different companies that are all pushing the limits and trying to find ways because the ultimate goal here is to really lower the cost of access to space. That in the end, that's what everybody is trying to do: lower the cost of access to space. And Blue Origin's approach is I wouldn't even say different. It's like they've they've got a different kind of pace, and the, uh, and they're not focused on the same things that like SpaceX is focused on. But in the end, that that's still their goal is eventually to do orbital flight, but also to have this reusability, which is just key in getting the costs down. That you don't like we said on past shows, you don't uh, throw away the jetliner after you do one flight with the seven forty seven. You don't throw it away. But that's that would be astronomically expensive, and haha, it is to do that with rockets too. So um, this is uh, this is cool news that they're able to do this, you know, refurbish and relaunch. Which to talk about the space shuttle again, I mean, that was the promise of the space shuttle originally that was never really fully uh, fulfilled. That that it would lower access to space by having reusable stuff, and uh, so we're back with uh, with this stuff. We're back there again. Very cool. Uh, so we're coming to the the end of our. Uh pre-flight checklist but we're going to make a stop in pluto corner 
Ooh, Pluto, Pluto corner. corner. Uh, the Pluto vertical, the smallest, smallest vertical. Is it a, is is it a vertical? Maybe it's a sub vertical. Uh, so again, new New Horizon stuff is coming out all the time. And God, oh, those guys are geniuses. Yeah. I know that there are reasons technically for it, but they're geniuses in we how keep, they they are are on. We're doing it all exactly the time. What they want us to do. They, I know they're we're dancing to their little Pluto game, <laughs> little Pluto song that they play, and then we dance. <laughs> And say, look, there's more pictures of Pluto. Woo! So look, there's more pictures of Pluto, and there, <laughs> there's evidence in these images that Pluto <laughs> may have once harbored uh, lakes of liquid nitrogen. Yeah, you know, it seems like maybe, and this is the the funny thing about us having flown past Pluto and having no plans to go back there anytime soon. And I, I'm I'm sure that hammer is going to drop where Alan Stern, the the principal investigator on New Horizons, at some point is going to. Um, gonna make the pitch that they need to they need to send another probe past or to Pluto because Pluto's um, surface seems way more dynamic than anybody thought. Like not only do you have the whole um, white icy region that is completely paved flat, you know where it's not um, it's not full of craters, um, so it's young. But then you've got a feature like this lake, which is like seriously, it's like a lake bed um, with shoreline. Um, and so there's this suggestion that um, Pluto's climate changes a lot over time, and that uh, not only should we not, not only should we study it carefully for its history in thousands and millions of years, but that it might even have climate change that happens in a relatively short range of time, like in 20 years or 30 years. Um, but we don't know because this is our best, you know, our, we only get the one shot at it and we have to extrapolate the rest of it. It's like looking at a star, like one star doesn't tell you about the life cycle of stars because it's just the one and you have to try to extrapolate or you have to find other ones. And this is our only Pluto. So we have to figure out, uh, by looking at it, but you know, it's hard not to look at that picture and just see a lake bed, even though that that would have been a liquid nitrogen lake and not a water lake in the end. It, it's, it's a, it's a lake at Pluto, which we just all assumed it was just going to be a snowball. Like that was just, you know, with craters and stuff, but dead, uninteresting uh, interesting in the sense of it being a new world to look at but i don't think most people expected that it would be as dynamic as it turns out to be that far out in the solar system that cold it's still um got things going on it's still active even even uh to this day it's uh, it's it's really remarkable and you know we spoke about it when we did the moon draft i think about you know we think of nitrogen as a gas, but so far out, you're you end up with it as a liquid or a solid. And uh, again, like I think, what did you? I think your phrasing was like outer solar system chemistry is weird. Um, yeah, another sure. example of that. But it's it's something that um, is interesting. And and it, Pluto's atmosphere right now is is too tenuous to have like liquid ni- ni- liquid nitrogen on the surface, but um, uh, you know, eight hundred thousand years ago, I guess they they think that the Pluto atmosphere was um is uh, is thicker and that that they think that it gets thicker and thinner as it goes through its seasons um and because the seasons are are like its orbit's 248 years so its seasons are like 50 years long um and uh or 70 years long or whatever it is they 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 are they have parts of pluto are dark for 50 years and then are sunlit for 50 years and so there it's a strange dynamic system that happens um but uh it's so it's possible that the the atmospheric pressure a long time ago was like 20,000 times more than it is today and that would have been enough for uh, liquid nitrogen to not just like emerge and boil off but actually be liquid on the surface which is what we're looking at right. on that picture yep. it's pretty awesome uh it's real those it's guys real awesome. uh, they they already know like they already know the the big next one the, the next week we'll be talking about this in 2 weeks there'll be some other thing the the, the it, this is the uh it's not just the future of science and space exploration. It's the future of the PR and and social media and marketing of science. And they've done an amazing job with that. Again, partially because they had to, um, because of the way that the data is trickling back. But also, it's a concerted effort, I think, to communicate and keep those communications rolling week in and week out. And I just think they've done a brilliant job at it. So sure, sign me up. Let's send something else to Pluto. Um, all right. Let's do it. 
So we have a little late breaking news that took place after our recording session, but we wanted to make sure it ended up in the show. On Friday, SpaceX finally stuck the landing, uh, bringing the first stage of its Falcon 9 rocket back to an at-sea drone ship. Now, you remember back in December, the company landed a spent rocket stage uh, at the Cape in Florida, but the company is really looking to land these things at sea for a couple different reasons. Uh, one is believed that it could be more affordable to do so, but the big, uh, the big thing here is flexibility. So if they launch from the Cape in Florida, they have to take a very specific path back to land. And uh, in cases like the, the last SpaceX mission before this, where they're putting something out well past the International Space Station, that's a problem because you have uh, fuel consumption to deal with, and you need fuel to slow the rocket down and control it upon landing. But if you can put uh, a drone ship or you know basically a robot barge, uh, out in the middle of the ocean, you don't have to travel that distance back to where you started, and you can uh, potentially, it's thought, to land with uh, less fuel. So the first time they did it, uh, Etsy, we've got some links in the show notes you can see in like 4K footage on YouTube now. And, uh, you know, it's interesting, This you know, kind of the same time, time period with Blue Origin landed the same rocket for the third time. The race is on to building and reusing these vehicles. Um, speaking of reusing, SpaceX has said sort of unofficially that they believe they could refly this vehicle uh, later this year. There's lots of questions as to if um, uh, NASA or some other agency would want uh, SpaceX to use this reusable rocket on their mission. Obviously, there'd be lots of testing, but it's still unknown. It'd be the first time a rocket would be reused uh, in a commercial setting. You know, the Blue Origin team is basically flying... Uh, their own rocket over and over. They don't have paying customers quite yet. So, a big news. It was a very exciting time Friday afternoon. And uh, back to the show. So, Jason, you have a mini topic for us this week. Yeah. So, I do have a mini topic. This is uh, some accidental. I was in Petaluma this week, uh, which is just north of where I live in the Bay Area, um, where Leo Laporte has the Twit Studios this week in tech, if you know about those uh those podcasts and uh they were interviewing leo was actually interviewing bill atkinson who was on the original macintosh team and he uh he did hypercard and all of mm-hmm. those things so just a great even for the non-computer nerds out there it's a great interview um it's on his triangulation show you should check it out but the, the interview went way over and so i was there like an hour turned out an hour before the show that i was going to be on to was going to start and they were really apologetic. They're like, oh, you know, I'm sorry. I'm like, hey, it's a great interview. This guy's a, a kind of a legend. We should, um, you know, you should let it go. That's that's fine. But one of the producers was like, hey, while you're waiting, do you want to try the Oculus Rift? <laughs> which we which they had just got. And it's on this custom PC that they had built on their show, The Screensavers. And I said, yeah. So we went over and I got to use the Oculus Rift, the the, the virtual reality headset. I have never used a virtual virtual reality headset before in any form. I've never tried an Oculus Rift before, not the dev kit, nothing, never. Um, and so we get there and we put it on and it turns out like half the things that you can choose to play on the Oculus Rift are space related, uh, which I thought was funny. And somebody asked me on Twitter and I, I don't know... I don't know who it was, but somebody asked me on Twitter if I had tried the Apollo 11 simulator on the Oculus Rift. My answer was no, because I have no Oculus Rift. I've never even tried it. But then I tried it, and they had the Apollo 11 simulator there. So I did. I, 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 uh, I, they, there's a, an Apollo 11 simulator. You go in. It's got, it's got a... Uh, it's pretty amazing. So, like, the cutscene is a a a three D model, like render of Apollo Eleven in space. You can see it. Uh, it's on its way to the moon. And the, these are goggles, so you know you 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 turn your head and you can turn to the right and you can see the Earth and you turn to the left and you can see the moon off in the distance. And everything's in three D because it's sending images to your left eye and your right eye. So everything is in three D, which is something I'd never really even thought of when in all this coverage of VR. I'd never even considered the fact that. It would not just be kind of immersive in the sense that everywhere you look, you're seeing this virtual world, but that it would also be all in three dimensions. 
I just, I don't know. I just never even thought of it. And that's the thing that struck me the most about it is that I was not only able to look around, but everything had depth to it. So the, the anyway, the Apollo 11 simulator, you go inside basically, and you're sitting in the left seat of the, uh, of the Apollo uh, command module. And you've got, um, you've got your, uh, the, the segment that I was in was like the, um, where you have to flip around, you have to you you undock from the LEM and flip around from the surface module, I guess, and flip around and then and then connect directly, and then you can cr- you you can open the hatch and you can crawl down into the LEM, and that's that's what they did. So, um, you know, you're sitting in you're sitting in the cockpit, and it's fascinating. So, it, you know, the controls will let you do obviously very simplified but they'll let you like do the do the docking maneuver so you've got to you've got to use like the left stick on the on the on the gamepad to flip the uh to flip the spacecraft over okay and and you see it out the windows and you can look like to your left out the window that's to your left and you can look up and the windows on the, on the Apollo capsule are really small right mm-hmm. so that's also pretty funny that you're getting the same bad view of it that the astronauts would have um, and you've got to flip around and then you've got to use, and this is all, you know, zero gravity. So it doesn't behave like physics does on earth because gravity is not an influence. You've got to, um, move the spacecraft at a good, at the right speed, not too fast and get it captured against the docking target. And I failed by the way, I totally failed <laughs> that, but it was really fun and so immersive. Like you look down and you can see the gloved hands on the, uh, on the console that is, it's supposed to be you, um, and there's an astronaut next to you in the seat next to you, and it's pretty it's pretty cool. So um, so I did that one, and uh, that was pretty awesome. And I also did there's there's a um, there's a an EVA simulator this this uh, the game that you're uh, you're in a uh, basically a uh, an EVA suit uh, a jet a jet suit, and you're um, you know you're you're supposed to go various places and pick things up and and it's a game you can pick up like oxygen canisters and things like that so it's not entirely you know it's gamified but i was really struck by how in the vr world um in a lot of these games you you um they've done a really good job of making you feel like your um you know it's supposed to be immersive but space is an interesting place to do that because the physics are different and it was the only time that i felt queasy the whole time i was doing vr was in the in, in the eva simulator mm-hmm. because one of the things you know first it has you like you you've got the controls to move the suit forward and to to move it back and to rotate it a little bit and then you can also you know if you move your head you're like looking around inside the um the the helmet which it makes it a little more immersive that you know you feel like you're inside this suit and uh, you can't move very much because you wouldn't anyway. But you've got your hands on the on the controls and you can you can pilot the suit around. But one of the one of the um, controls lets you kind of rotate left or right, and that that was the moment where I got super queasy because as you said earlier, there's no up or down in space. Right. <laughs> so a lot of the orientation stuff you have to do, you have to just kind of flip over and everything turns. Mm. And keeps turning until you're completely opposite of your old orientation. And that's the problem with this VR stuff is that our our balance system is not affected by any of it, right? So you 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 have motion problems where your body isn't feeling the motion, but your eyes are experiencing the right. motion. And that's that can lead to motion sickness. And and I had that thought while I was doing this of like, why did they make a game that is it, that is in zero gravity? This is the this is like, are you trying to get me to throw up? <laughs> Are you trying to make me space sick, essentially? Um, but so I had that moment, but it was still pretty great. It was it was very much like, and the guy who set me up with it said these are the ones that people are loving because it's like you're in outer space, and it's totally true. Um, a game that I didn't get to a chance to play, but that they had on there was Eve Valkyrie, which I feel like is a little bit more um, fitting for the whole VR genre because you're you're piloting. It's a you know it's a space battle game, but you're you're piloting a spaceship, which means you're sitting down with your hands on controls in the game, which is literally what you're probably doing at home. You're sitting down with your hands on controls, so um, it, it's sort of clever in that way that it's putting you. Your body is in a very similar position to your character in the game. And that that's probably helpful, but um, but the other two, the Apollo Eleven simulator and the EVA simulator, it was a lot of fun. So if somebody's got a friend who gets one of these VR headsets, I definitely recommend that you uh, you check out the space stuff because it is um, it was a really fun experience. I wish I'd had more time. Um, I was happy to not be sickened by it, <laughs> but um, 
it was uh, it was it was definitely fun to try and immersive in a way that I didn't expect. Um, and I just think it's funny that they they have all these kind of space based things in the uh, store at launch. Yeah, and I have haven't had any firsthand experience with this either. But from reading a lot of reviews and talking to a lot of people, like it, what seems the most interesting to me is that, that what you did really isn't a game, right? It's like you said, it's an experience. It's something that you can yeah. um, you can go interact with and be a part of, but it's not a game in the sense that, that we may have defined a game in the past. And uh, I could see a lot of like educational and experiential things coming out of that. So that that's what I'm excited about this technology. I, I am pretty easily motion sick. So uh, you describing like, you're turning around and of course you're still sitting or standing, you know, upright. That sort of made me queasy thinking about it. But, um, yeah, yeah. The flipping over thing was like, Whoa, no, (laughs) you know, but, uh, yeah. Anyway, it's, it's a, it's a fun example. And just, I mean, if you want to feel like you're in outer space, this is, this is actually kind of a way to do that. And, uh, that's pretty cool. The idea that you're, you're floating free in your little, uh, EVA suit. That's uh, pretty awesome. It's pretty cool. So we're going to get to our, our main topic in just a second, which is the NASA uh, SLS, the Space Launch System. But first, we're going to take a quick break, and uh, this episode of Liftoff is brought to you by the Relay FM membership. Yay! From the beginning, uh, Relay FM has been a community for podcasters, listeners, and those who like to send in follow-up. Uh, it's, a, it's a place to share our common interests and passions. And with the Relay FM membership, you can directly support the hosts of your favorite shows. Each show has three options for membership. Uh, silver, which is 5 bucks a month. Gold is 10 bucks a month. And annual, which is $100 a year. And what's, what's really great about this, you can go in and you can uh, support all the great shows and that supports everyone on the network. Or if you're into some shows really specifically, you can uh, join just those shows. And uh, what's, what's cool about this is there's lots of perks. So we are doing uh, bonus episodes of all Relay shows during the anniversary week in August. It's already coming up. I'm already starting some planning there with some people. We do a monthly behind-the-scenes newsletter, and you get 15% off anything in the uh, in the merchandise store. If you're already a member, I want to say thank you. We have members for Liftoff. Jason and I have other shows on the network that have members. Uh, we appreciate your direct support. It really means a lot to us, and it helps us uh, be able to do what we do. But if you're not a member, you can go learn more and check it out at relay.fm slash membership. And uh, you can pick your shows, you can pick all the great shows and uh, and help support what we do here on the network. Yeah. And so if you would like to, if you like Liftoff, uh, you could support us that way. If you, if you, if you say, I love that uh, fortnightly podcast, I would like to, uh, to donate to the cause um, and the proceeds go to the host of the shows. So if you, if you sign up for a Liftoff subscription, that will, uh, that will come to us and we will thank you for it. Very cool. So the space launch system. It's a, mm. it's a mouthful, so we're, I at least am going to use SLS, which is the the acronym that uh, everything, as I'm sure listeners have discovered, everything in space has an acronym because um, that's the sort of uh, people who do space things, I guess, like the same type of people who like acronyms. But um, the SLS is, is currently uh, under development. It is NASA's next generation uh, vehicle. And we're going to get into sort of what it can do and how it's put together and missions and stuff. But I think I think first it's important to kind of know how it got started. And this this led down a path for me at least of a lot of learning because I had I was I was I have always been into space, but definitely much more into the industry than I used to be. And uh, under the um, the Bush administration, the Constellation program took shape. <clears throat> We've got some links in the show notes. Uh, you can go read about it. But in short, the Constellation program was a three-step program that would eventually get us to Mars. But it was first to put uh, Americans on the moon again by 2020. And this included the Orion capsule, which is actually the only surviving part of this program, uh, a new lunar lander uh, known as the Altair, and then uh, a new rocket called the Ares-1. And... Uh, it was basically rebuilding the Apollo sort of idea, right? And so we're going to go to the moon and then we're going to use that hardware and that knowledge to go to Mars. And unfortunately, and you, I mean, you could spend hours reading about this. There's lots of sort of angles into why this failed, but I think it really came down to being drastically over budget and drastically behind schedule. 
And so there was a committee put together under the Obama administration to look at what it would take to fix the Constellation program. And they came back with a number of $150 billion. And um, and so the uh, Obama administration basically canceled the Constellation program in 2010 for the budget reasons, for the schedule reasons. I think there's also there, there's a lot of uh, people out there that have the opinion that maybe the moon isn't a necessary stop on the way to Mars. And a Constellation was so focused on the moon for its first you know, many, many years that it was sort of felt that that had become the mission and not necessarily Mars. And the Obama administration and some people within NASA really wanted Mars to be the ultimate destination. And so the SLS sort of came out of the ashes of the Constellation program. The Orion capsule uh, survived. So that was a capsule that was already in progress under the Constellation program. So what we have today with the SLS but the rocket and the lunar lander were scrapped. The lunar lander actually was, there's not one built. It was still in the planning stages. Yeah, they didn't throw away an existing one. Forget right. out of here, you. Yeah. Um, but they shut, they stopped the development of right, that one. Right. So uh, so that was all put away. And the SLS uh, was the, the new plan to be uh, acted upon. And I think some, some adjectives come to mind. The SLS is ambitious. And ultimately more flexible than the hardware being designed under the Constellation program. And as we go through this, uh, the ambition and the flexibility of this of this platform are really what proponents of it. Um, that's the praise they sing. That it can be uh, used for lots of different things, and because of the technology in use in it, um, it can be. It's sort of a known quantity, right? So we can get into some of those parts in a second, but that's really the praises of it, that it's ambitious, uh, but it's flexible and it's it's got some known known items in it. So it's interesting. We're now about five years, more or less, into the SLS program um, uh, with a date of, I think, 2018 for, for vehicle completion. Um it is well underway uh, through NASA's efforts and through the efforts of, you know, NASA always uses third-party vendors and, and, and manufacturers to help them build stuff. But this is what NASA is working on today. When, when we talk about going to Mars, it is on the back of this vehicle. Um, and we've spoken about this. We've spoken about why well, I want to do this. We've spoken around this for a while and talking about commercial crew. Um, SpaceX and Boeing are going to be, you know, taking astronauts to the National Space Station before long. And that is allowing NASA to focus on this, um, this this bigger, more long-reaching uh, project and platform. So that's kind of the background, I guess. Um, and I think we can just uh, go ahead and, and dive on into the uh, overview. Yeah. So um, uh, the, the SLS is modular. We'll have some pictures in the show notes. but. It is designed to be uh, upgraded over time. Looks so, familiar, though, doesn't it? It it looks very, very familiar. If you pull a picture of it up, we'll put it on the show note page as well. Uh, the The core of the vehicle is the external fuel tank from the shuttle mm-hmm. program, and it uses an upgraded version of the RS twenty five shuttle motor. Uh, underneath that and it uses modified larger SRBs the solid rocket boosters from the shuttle program as well and so so if you imagine like uh the space shuttle stack more or less but with uh instead of a shuttle mounted to it there's a capsule on top yep basically (laughs) that's the SLS that's what it is um and there, there are three sort of three and a half versions planned block one block one b and block two and basically what that describes is the the lift capacity of the vehicle in its various configurations and what is basically bolted to the top of it. Uh, so to kind of put it into um, uh, comparison with other vehicles America has used in the past, Block 2 is roughly equivalent to the Saturn V rocket. Now, the Saturn V does hold the... Uh, Largest payload ever lifted at 140 metric tons. Yeah. 
Um, so this is going to block two is is figured to be about 130 metric tons, but I would say that uh, that is in the same category of vehicle, right? These are heavy lift vehicles, so it can carry cargo, but it can also carry the Orion capsule that, that we've spoken about before, um, and it can also carry the Orion service module, which is being uh, built in Europe by ESA and its partners. And so this this is a flexible system. So you can put a crew on top of it or you can carry cargo. And depending on the amount of cargo you can take, you can fly it in block one, block one B, or eventually block two. Uh, we're going to get to why block two has an asterisk next to it. But um, that's sort of the idea here, that you can use the same vehicle for lots of different things. And this this comes from, I think, what we talked about about the shuttle program, that the cargo bay on the shuttle just wasn't big enough for what a lot of uh, people wanted or needed. And so even in the heyday of the shuttle program, you still had satellites and other things being lifted by uncrewed rockets because they could carry more and they could do it more reliably and uh, very often for less money. And so this, this so much of the SLS is in response, I think, to the criticism of the shuttle program. I just, I just find it really interesting. Yeah, it's... Um... It's like when we t- we talked about the shuttle earlier, right? This is so much of this is um, what can we pick up the – it's like let's pick up the pieces from the space shuttle program. What can we take? What can we use? What can we learn from that? And, the, and that includes uh, what not to do in some cases, but what to do and, and equipment in other cases, and then kind of mix it all back together. So uh, people who were wanting NASA's uh, next-gen stuff to be completely different from the space shuttle, um, you know, that's not what they got. Uh, they, they get that on the, uh, for the crewed uh, capsule. Mm-hmm. It, that's a new that's a new piece of equipment that the likes of which we haven't seen in in many many years but uh for the launch vehicle you know the fact is that although there were issues with the space shuttle program some of them uh and safety especially some of them a lot of them were related to the fact that you couldn't abort easily from a crew capsule that's strapped to the side of that right uh that rocket and when this design uses those engines and those tanks but um but puts the puts the 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 payload or the crew on the top where they can much more easily um separate and get out of the way if there's something that's wrong so um why not use them because you've already you already know how to build them and you've got a couple decades of history firing those uh that equipment yeah and especially the RS25 those motors that were mounted to the shuttle itself um for a lot of people's opinion, that's one of the best pieces of engineering NASA's ever had in its arsenal. And the actually the for the first few SLS missions, we were going to be using basically rebuilt RS-25s that were left over from the shuttle days, and they'll be moving on to manufacturing new ones. But they there there's something to that sort of um, recycling and upgrading of this technology that is, um, uh, like you said, it's. For someone who wanted something new and shiny, this isn't it. But at the same time, it kind of is. It's just, it's a very strange mix of old and new ideas. Yeah. So we talked about the boosters a little bit. They, they're going to be off to the side, the sides. And they're going to be using five-segment solid rocket boosters, which are basically just one, like one section taller than what was used on the, on the shuttle program. Right. Um, but there's been a lot of back and forth around the boosters that will be needed for block two to get those 130 metric tons off the ground. There was concern that the current plan um, was not going to basically offer enough horsepower. So they were looking at building, and I'm going to use air quotes because of what all these articles did was advanced boosters. No one really knows what that means. Um, but there was actually concern that to, to fly those, it was going to cause damage to the Orion capsule and to the launch pad itself. <laughs> so much force is needed, and so it, it seems like there's a lot of been a lot back and forth. NASA was having a design program to design new advanced boosters, and that seems to have been shelved for the time being. So Block Two is just, just sort of punted downfield a little bit. Yeah, you, you you start talking about and writing about NASA long enough, and you discover that there's this thing that happens, which is things get kicked. The can gets kicked down the road a lot at NASA, doesn't it? And this is a great example yep. of that, where it's just uh, not right now. <laughs> maybe yeah. later. Maybe, maybe at some point in the future. And 
and so that that doesn't mean that um there's not going to be new you know advanced boosters built you know these would be built new you know for the SLS but right now the plan is to use the the upgraded shuttle SRBs for as long as possible and you know it uh, I guess that is what it is like I don't have you know I don't know what else to say there except that um that's just unknown and I guess that's sort of the like one of the side effects, I guess, if you're using old equipment in new ways, that at some point you're going to hit hit the ceiling of what that equipment can do. And I think that's kind of what has happened with uh, with these boosters. That you know, you can take a design that was built to launch something much smaller, and you can push it and you can upgrade it. But to a, at a certain point, you're going to have to build something new for the scale of this thing. So the uh, so we've talked about that. We talked about the the motors, the core of the rocket, the boosters. Um, so let's talk about the upper stages for a little bit. Um, and so for a little bit of a, a refresher, uh, a lot of uh, rockets, like we'll, uh, I'll compare it to the Falcon Nine, um, the SpaceX uses, where they have the uh, the lower stage. That's the part that they try to to land right and try to reuse. And then you have an upper stage where it basically separates and ha- it has its own motor and it fires again. So the Saturn V did this. Um, it would launch. It would get to low Earth orbit, and then basically it would fire again to, to put Apollo on the way to the moon. And so this is the same deal here. Uh, for SLS to go further than low Earth orbit, it has to use an upper stage. And there are two that are sort of available at this point. Um, you have the Interim Chirogenic Propulsion Stage, ICPS, because... Catchy acronyms um and it's actually going to be used here pretty shortly to put an uncrewed or uh, orion capsule uh, around the moon and so this is a smaller propulsion stage uh it is sort of in line with what saturn 5 used but then you have the new one the exploration upper stage which can be used to put heavy loads uh into low earth urban and beyond but it can also send the capsule or um you know, a probe or some other type of vehicle into deep space. Uh, so something like uh, Cassini, we were speaking about earlier, if uh, Cassini was to be, you know, put on top of the SLS, they could use this uh, exploration upper stage to get it on its way. So again, flexibility, right? That a lot of platforms only have one upper stage. Well, this one is going to have two where they can pick uh, what the mission needs. And um, I think a lot of this idea is for affordability, that if you don't need the big, expensive, heavy exploration upper stage, then you can use the smaller ICPS to get get the job done. So it does lead to complication, right? Uh, I was reading about the way they mount these things, and it differs per upper stage, and it differs between block one and block two. But the idea, again, coming back to, we can custom build the stack for the mission and just fly what we need to and keep the price down and, you know, kind of get the job done. Right. So, you know, as opposed to the shuttle that was kind of the same every time, right? If you're, if you're fixing Hubble or if you're going to the space station or uh, you have the um, space lab in the trunk, like we talked about last time, uh, shuttle's doing the same thing every time. So there are uh, some proposed missions uh, in, in getting this thing ready and orion actually flew was it now a year and a half ago or so went out past the radiation belt and back um to test a lot of stuff on the orion capsule and uh, but we're we're going to be moving into here relatively soon in the next couple of years some testing of the block one configuration so doing things like sending payloads to low earth orbit um, sending the Orion capsule, like I said, uh, basically in a in a lap around the moon. Uh, one of the a little bit further out is the um, asteroid redirect mission. Yeah, it sounds more dangerous than it probably is. Yeah, it sounds crazy <laughs> pants. <laughs> the idea is to find a small. So asteroids are interesting. We have to study them. Uh, we have sent you know missions to asteroids, but they're far away. They, these are these are you know we want to know more about them. And one way to do that would be to go get one. Uh, and 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 the idea is to go get one and steer it into a lunar orbit. So the idea would be you 
push on that asteroid, hopefully don't like steer it into the earth. And instead, um, it would it would go and be captured by the moon's gravity, at which point you've got this asteroid that is going around the moon that you can um, you can then study because um, it's right there. It's nearby. We don't have to. We you can you can study it more much more readily than you could if it was uh it, it was way out. <laughs> Plus, yes, you get to practice uh, diverting asteroids in case we find an asteroid that we need to divert before it hits the Earth. Mm-hmm. And there's there's an idea too that if uh, if when it's time and this is like twenty twenty one twenty twenty two that if there's not an asteroid sort of the size that we need, there's actually hardware that could go and basically cut a boulder out of the surface and just fly it back. So right. And and it's a, this is not like an asteroid belt asteroid. It's a near Earth asteroid. Right. So it would be something that passes relatively close to the Earth, but that we could then redirect into a lunar orbit and and uh, then use as a, as a laboratory. Basically, that that the advantage of that is that we could send even even crewed missions there, and you wouldn't have the to escape the gravity of it because it would be it's very small, so it doesn't have much gravity, and uh, yet you could still sort of practice a lot of stuff. A lot of NASA's plans seem to be very much sort of like. Um, they they talk about cislunar space, you know, basically like the area around the Earth to the Moon, and the, this idea of like getting more before we go to Mars, we need to get way more comfortable in the nearby but out, but not low Earth orbit, right? Near further out, but relatively nearby. And those are the arguments for doing a Moon base. Those are the arguments for the asteroid mission is to get us more comfortable working on stuff in space that isn't the space station before we do something like go to Mars. Yeah. It's out of everything on this list. Uh, I think the asteroid redirect mission is sort of the most science fiction to me for some it reason. It really is like, so science fictiony. Um, like, you know, putting humans on Mars, eh, doing this blows my mind. But yeah, um, yeah you, ba- you basically, um, you, uh, they, they, they land on an asteroid and like, uh, grip onto the onto the asteroid and then thrust it with a with like a solar engine basically it's uh it's cool stuff so there's kind of going a little bit further out i mean that that's 2021 2022 talking about a return to the moon talking about putting a large aperture space telescope uh at the l2 lagrange point talking about uh, a mission and a probe to Uranus, and then, of course, talking about preparation for uh, human missions to Mars. And so all of this stuff being planned out on the back of this vehicle, and, you know, this is a wide range of stuff, right? But so... So I think one of the questions that a lot of people would have is why why is this... We're talking about, like, sending probes to Uranus and places like that. Like, why why... It's not just about sending people to places. Why do this when we've got SpaceX and a bunch of other companies building um, these the their own lift vehicles for access to space? And the short answer is that this is a vehicle with way more lifting capacity than those. And because those are focused on getting things into Earth orbit primarily. And again, like we said at the beginning of the show, reducing the cost of access to space and what NASA is doing here, this is impractical stuff, right? This is the stuff that is not going, a business is not going to be able to make a profit on in the short term. You know, near Earth orbit, there's a lot of money to be made, uh, low Earth orbit. But uh, sending something to Neptune, I mean, who's going to do that? That's like, they're, they're, they have three possible clients, one of which is NASA. So I think the, I think the block, is it the block one or maybe it's the block two? What These, the SLSs are going to be able to, to uh, launch I think their capacity that you were talking about, like 130 metric tons in block two, I think the Falcon Heavy is only supposed to do like 50. Yeah. So even even SpaceX's Falcon Heavy, which is not the one that it's currently using, um, that that one's not going to be able to carry the loads that this thing is going to be able to carry. And that's why this kind of has to come from a government space agency, because it's not practical for commercial application it's useful for lots of other things in space, but not the commercial application stuff so much. So that that's one of the reasons behind, you know, why why this kind of a thing might be necessary. Although there are plenty of uh, 
there are plenty of uh, critics of this entire project, right? Oh yeah, and <laughs> there's um, there's one critic in particular who's been really vocal. In fact, a lot of the articles I was looking through um, are kind of based on her comments. And this is uh, Lori Garver, who is NASA's former deputy administrator, and uh, I think she's sort of leading the way in the thought of you know this stuff should be handled by the private sector, like you were just talking about. Uh, but also that this thing has been really expensive and yeah. it's not in the trouble that the Constellation program has been in, but it is a huge undertaking. And like um, we, were talk- we spoke about this really early on, this idea that the space industry employs people basically in 50 states, like all over the country. And that's been really true of the SLS. And so it's kind of become um, like the, the, the backronym is the Senate launch system. Yeah. Yeah. Which I find uh, very clever and somewhat, uh, somewhat funny, but um, this, this idea that, you know, this is a lot of money and this is stuff. This is, these are resources that we could be putting into other aspects of science and exploration and let private companies build the vehicles and, NASA basically fly their science on them. The, the NASA should not be in the hardware business, should not be in the vehicle business anymore. And I can see that point of view, and I don't necessarily uh, disagree with it 100%, um, especially when you look at um, you know the percentages of, of NASA's budget that are, are going to this, as opposed to something like planetary science, right, that, that always seems to kind of get the cut. Um, and so... I don't know. I really don't know how I feel about this. I mean, I've been we haven't thinking about this for a couple of days, knowing we we're going to record this. And like, I think the part of me that really loves the SLS is the part of me that has like um, uh, nostalgic feelings for the time before I was around. Right? Like, like the Saturn V being this this complicated, powerful machine that like was built in America that got humanity to the moon. Right? Like something very romantic about that in my mind. Um, and maybe the SLS can do that for this generation, right? Like my kids are going to see things take place if if all these plans pan out. They're just amazing. But uh, on the other side, there's so much stuff that we could be doing if the SLS wasn't taking up all the re- you know the, the resources that it is. And so I, I don't know. What do you think about this? Where do you come down on it? Yeah, I um I I was also gonna we'll throw it in the show notes. I, uh, there was a nice short piece by Phil Plate on the Bad Astronomy blog that is about like. It's the rocket we want, but is it the rocket we need? And the problem is it's expensive and underfunded, and it's um, and you definitely get the sense of like it's uh like you said, it's the it's a full employment plan for uh actually i think one of the arguments that's also we talked about the advantages of the shuttle program uh having that equipment reused but the argument is that that also is just keeping the suite uh contracts in place for those providers in all of those states that could have gone up to bid um if they were creating something new so is it really economical or is it just keeping the gravy train riding for the people who are you know companies and jobs but you know keep cutting the checks to the people who would otherwise have had to lose a lot of business when the space shuttle program shut down sure um you know uh, yeah it's a it's a government bureaucracy it's hard to cheer on government bureaucracies uh when you're looking at things like this so i i don't know i feel like i mean in in some ways it is it, it's the it's the the program we've got and i hate to do the old sunk cost fallacy thing and say do we really want to throw it away and start from scratch but i also see the argument that commercial um commercial companies are are doing a lot of work here um and that nasa should probably avoid competing with them on stuff where there is actually going to be commercial application too, or whether the commercial companies can provide NASA with what they want. Because that, that would be the other argument is if NASA went to, had in addition to their commercial crew program, if they went back and said, we want a bigger lifting vehicle for all of these other things. And instead of going through bids and contracts and stuff like that for suppliers for NASA, we're going to do what we did with commercial crew, which is have 
you commercial companies vie to fulfill this for us. And they don't seem comfortable in doing that. I think maybe because commercial crew is, you know, relatively new. This is a new thing for NASA to have any of this commercial stuff out there. And they still haven't actually, and, and, and commercial launch in general, not just the crew part. Um, so yeah, um, it's hard to really root for it at the same time. It would be, I, I'd kind of be willing to get behind it if they would show, uh, more clarity about where they're going. And I think that's the thing that really bothers me about it is that, as I said about Mars, a Mars plan a few episodes ago, where's the plan there's a lot of can kicking going on here. There's a lot of, you know, we'll make it work eventually down the road, but for now we're just trying to put some of the pieces together and it gets, uh, that, that part is, uh, is frustrating. So I don't know. I, I totally see the arguments that this is money that would be better spent on planetary science and working with com- commercial uh, programs rather than building a big uh, gold-plated rocket, essentially, <laughs> for NASA. Um, but at the same time, I do also understand the argument that um, there's some stuff that NASA and other space agencies want to do that they kind of have to do themselves because it's not practical. And, you know, it's not a... Uh, it's not opening a, a new, you know, commercial opportunity necessarily, but it's something that they still need to do if they want to do exploration. Yeah, I think that's, I think it's well said. It's 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 complicated. I mean, anytime you have something just this this expensive and this complex, um, like I get I can feel that tension, right? Of like, it, yes, it'd be great to know exactly what's going on and have a really well defined plan, but at the same time, like that might not be all that doable you know maybe it's that you know i think i think a lot of these phases like we were talking about you know doing these things becoming comfortable and then moving forward like that's really what gemini and early apollo was all about right it was hey let's see if we can fly two vehicles at the same time hey let's dock them hey let's do a spacewalk like every single mission has something new and and unknown about it and this is a little bit of a return to that but on a much larger scale and you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I wasn't around, so I don't know how well defined the public's information was about what was going on with each Gemini flight or each early Apollo flight. But that tension, I think, is inevitable. Even if they were doing private vehicles, that people would want to know, you know, well, when are we going to see these milestones met? And, and maybe that's an impossible solution. Like maybe there is no solution to that. Maybe it's an impossible situation, but it sure feels like. Uh, the agency could do more in telling the story of what this thing is is for, and uh, and, and doing a better job at, at laying out the groundwork to get us to Mars, because a lot of it is sort of hand wavy right now, and I think that's sort of where a lot of this frustration comes back to, of just like kind of you know not understanding what's going on, not knowing what's going on, and. Uh, in that environment, it's really easy to sort of question the whole thing. Yeah, it's complicated, you know, like most bureaucracies and the things they do. Yeah. So, you know, like uh, like most things, um, it, it's going to be uh, something to keep an eye on. And, you know, we're coming up towards vehicle completion here in a couple of years. And some of these these missions are going to begin and they're going to they're going to fly the Orion capsule again. And uh if it all pans out, I think we really are at the at the very beginning stages of a very exciting time in space exploration. But um, I guess we've got to see if that pans out. Yeah, that's the that's the challenge. There's not a lot. It, it's just this is talking about bringing you down. I I think this is a fascinating contrast about when we talk about SpaceX or Blue Origin, and then uh, we talk about NASA, right? Like, uh, or, or when we talk about the NASA, especially this part of the NASA stuff, as opposed to things that that are um, that are often handled through NASA, but are run by, the, but are planetary science stuff. Right? Mm-hmm. This is the the non planetary science stuff, and it's it's not don't get that same shiny feeling as you do from the planetary science stuff, like the Mars missions and New Horizons and things like that, or from what the commercial organizations are doing. It's just, it's a stark contrast that this feels like, you know, there's so much money and there's so much complexity involved, but there's also so much uh, bureaucracy and it moves, it just moves so slowly and it's frustrating and people can't seem to agree. And this is the least fun thing to talk about, I think, when it comes to uh, various things involving space programs. Agreed. 
I think I think that wraps up the uh, SLS for now. Yeah, the, it, the story goes on and on, though. It's true. <laughs> well, I'm sure we'll have updates throughout the lifetime of this podcast about what's going on with SLS. Yep. So if you want to check out the show notes uh, for this week, you can do so on our web- website. It's a relay.fm slash liftoff slash 18. Uh, we're also going to put some of the stuff up on the Tumblr at liftoffpodcast.space. You can follow along on Twitter. The show is at liftoff podcast you can find jason on twitter at jsnell and he writes sixcolors.com if you haven't visited six colors do it and just keep it do loaded it. for a minute and watch the navigation it's mm. magical you can find me on twitter at ismh and at 512pixels.net and until the next fortnight jason say goodbye bye everybody adios